0: Hi and welcome to the podcast, I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan.
1: And I'm Gavin Cooper.
0: So welcome back to series three of Bolas. We've got another 10 episodes released every Monday. And our first episode of this series is with Vanya Gant on microbiology. Um, Sonia, what was it about this episode that you really liked? Yeah, so this uh, was an interesting episode. We haven't done one focusing just on bacteria, so it was really interesting to hear about all the different types we have in our body and how it lives with us, and not necessarily against us in a negative term that we think of when we think of our patients being neutropenic. So he explained, you know, mainly they live in the gut and how they work. And there was time to do some kind of quick fire questions that some of the ward nurses have wanted to ask, um, a microbiologist, so c diff toxin antigen what's the difference is there a difference do we treat it differently Piptaz, how that works why that is the uh, kind of national first line antibiotic for nutrient sepsis a bit of anatomy around that which was interesting and gav do you want to tell us a bit more about what's up in season no
1: series three series three you just so lead in with series three i mean the next couple of episodes should be great we've got myelofibrosis and the one after that we'll be talking about actually fertility following chemotherapy and stem cell transplants because that's I think an underappreciated area.
0: So we spoke to Sarah Grace, one of our bone marrow transplant CNSs, um, to talk about the patient journey through bone marrow transplant and also how you find a donor.
1: And following on from the fertility one, really, really interesting one is about CNS lymphoma. We've got some extremely knowledgeable consultants at uclh who specialize in this disease and we're lucky enough to be joined by kate zanarski to talk us through all the ins and outs of treating patients with cns lymphoma a real area of specialty for her
0: and uh yeah well, thanks everyone for listening because we've now hit way over ten thousand downloads
1: so um tell your friends <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh god sorry did i talk over you there no. no it was just so cringe <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks, Vanya, for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about bacteria? We sort of hear that bacteria is is unnecessary. Uh, We've kind of got a symbiotic relationship with it. Is, Is that the
2: case? Sure. Okay, so just for the record, my name is Vanya Gant. I'm a consultant microbiologist here at UCLH, and I'm also qualified in infectious diseases. And I have had an evolving and now continuous interest with anything and everything that has to do with hematological malignancy in this trust for something like 15 years. Okay. And uh, the reason I became interested in it is because of the very nature of your work, which means that because of the malignancy itself or because of the treatments that you employ to get rid of the malignancy, you put your patients at exquisitely high risk of infections. And broadly speaking, they can be bacterial infections and they can be viral infections, but perhaps more of that later. I think I should start really by talking about us as human beings. Not everybody knows that we have 10 times more bacteria in and on us than we do our own cells. So that's an interesting fact. That means that we're just mere taxis, really, for these bacteria that have been on this planet literally thousands of times longer than we have and uh, you know if the planet now is on new year's eve then the bacteria came along in about june or july and we turned up long after christmas we cannot and could never live without bacteria they make vitamins for us they make absolutely vital molecules that keep our colon healthy We now know that they are intimately connected with our natural and normal immunity. And so we have about a kilo, a kilo and a half of them. And most people think the spleen and the thymus is where immunity happens. Well, certainly some of it does, but most of it in adults happens in the colon because most of our immune system is wrapped around our large bowel. People don't understand that. We know that all these bacteria, of which there are probably over 4,500 different types, some of them only found at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, 10 miles underwater, and in hot sulphur vents at the bottom of the sea, happen to live in our guts as well. And these are not there by chance, they're there because they fulfil a very important role in terms of keeping us alive and, we now know, educating our immune systems. And there's much work to show that they can send signals across the large bowel into lymph nodes. And the cells, our cells within there, learn to read those signals and are modulated in what they do according to what the bacteria tell them. And we now know even more. We know there's a connection between the bacteria in the colon and the lymph nodes around the colon and the brain. And those three things are intimately connected through immunity. And they all started with bacteria. The issue really we have with hematological malignancy and its treatment is that those treatments very often destroy our natural microbiome, sometimes completely. And by so doing, whether or not you've got leukemia, if you have a destroyed microbiome, you will get sick. You will get very sick. And we can now tell from looking at people's microbiome at a stool sample whether, for example... They're an 18-year-old fit person who can play five sets of tennis, or, in fact, an 18-year-old not-so-fit person with chronic disease, or, in fact, a 75-year-old who can play tennis. And the people who play tennis have got very different microbiological flora within them. Their microbiome is totally different, which is kind of an interesting thing in itself. Hmm. The other thing to say is that the good bacteria, of which probably about 99% of our gut bacteria are, make things called short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids are the only food that our gut can eat because they're a long way away from the bloodstream. And so it's not surprising, really, that when you kill off bacteria in the gut, your gut suffers, and that's why people get antibiotic-associated diarrhoea. And if you then take that back to the hematological malignancy situation, you're in double trouble, aren't you? Your antibiotics will destroy most of that flora, if not just about all of it. Your colon will suffer. It will become permeable. You'll get diarrhea. And, of course, the colonocytes that live on the bacteria and eat the food they're given by the bacteria also die. And it's not surprising then, isn't it? that maybe 95 or let's say 100% of your patients at some point in their treatment get diarrhoea. And that's made 10 times worse because so many of your chemotherapeutic agents are also intensely toxic for the large bowel. So we're doing two things, aren't we? We're giving them diarrhoea with chemotherapy and we're giving them diarrhoea by getting rid of the good guys that would otherwise prevent them from getting into terrible trouble with colitis. So I think the picture I want to paint is that most of the infection problems we see with bacteria in your hematology patients have got nothing to do with them being given infections. They're all to do with organisms that they carry and uh, that normally give no trouble at all because of the way the populations are changed with antibiotics and because of the chemotherapy and the destruction of immunity end up in places they shouldn't be. And the most common form of that is sepsis, which is due to the presence of organisms in the blood that have no place there. But they end up being able to get into the blood through a destroyed gut. And that's because of the chemotherapy, and that's also because of the antibiotics. And the ones that survive the antibiotics are the ones that end up in the blood. And that's why we end up in a terrible, vicious circle of fever, sepsis, antibiotics and antibody resistance
1: and can i just ask we don't see growth from every blood culture that we send i mean to what extent Mm. is it we're just not growing a bacteria that might be present in the blood for example is the gut inflammation enough to drive a temperature and actually there is no infection in in some cases of neutropenic sepsis
2: wow what a what a difficult question that is so It's a complicated answer, but essentially we grow less than 2% of the bacteria we know live in our gut. We can't grow the other 98% because these bugs have no business growing in a microbiology laboratory. Okay, We know they're there because you can do some genomic work and you can find their sequence. So we know they're there and they're alive and you can see them under the microscope, but they never grow. So one of the reasons is that they penetrate the bloodstream and they give you fever. But since we can't pull them out with traditional blood culture technology, we never find them. So they're not sterile at all. The, mm-hmm. the blood is not sterile at all. It's full of what's in the gut. Uh, but in normal grow. health? Or, or No, no, no. In normal health, uh, you know, your healthy gut and your immune system will keep essentially just about everything out of the blood for most of the time. Yeah. Although we all know that, you know, every time we brush our teeth, we'll end up with bugs in the blood from just brushing our teeth because the mouth is a particularly rich source of bacteria. There's probably as many, if not more, bacteria living in the mouth than there are living three inches up people's backsides. And people don't actually realize that. You know, we carry huge concentrations of bacteria throughout the whole of our gut. And from literally the mouth to the anus. But to come back to your question, people can be feverish because there are bacteria now that have penetrated the blood because the immune defence has gone that we can't grow. And also, it is very, very likely that because the gut is so damaged that other substances, probably such as endotoxin and things that we know the bacteria make, they don't need to be live at all. They're just extremely fever-provoking molecules. And they soak through what essentially becomes, you know, starts off as a healthy colon and ends up as a very, very damaged, thin sort of membrane. It's a bit like, you know, having toilet paper instead of a colon. And it's not at all surprising that your patients become so feverish and toxic. But the answer to their fever is not all antibiotics.
0: I think that's quite an important point that... Um some of our patients struggle to understand if they've got a temperature they assume that you know they've been given an infection that that's kind of what the gist is um, mm. from the relatives so when we explain to them actually most infections come from within yes. because you know yeah. we've suppressed your immune system and um, but they they're always surprised and quite fixated on the blood culture results because they know yes. we're, we're taking them yeah.
2: But you're absolutely right. It is a common conception in the Western world that bacteria are bad for you and fevers get better with antibiotics. And neither of those applies in health or disease. And it is a a very constant battle that we have to fight. And it's a battle, if you want, of uh, hearts and minds and preconception rather than a battle of science to convince people that antibiotics in the context of hematological practice are life-saving, but they will not necessarily be able to switch the fever off. And your patients who say, well, you've told me you give given me some very strong stuff and I'm still feeling terrible, need to understand that if you want, you can have, in simple terms, blood poisoning because their tummy is weakened and their immunity is weakened. That does not mean that there is a live bug in their blood, and very often there may not be. Every time junior doctors come along, they, I constantly have to remind them, and they usually don't understand this concept. I'm not giving antibiotics for fever. Fever will always be there in your patients when they're being treated, full stop, always. I give antibiotics to prevent those few really nasty organisms, and they're called gram-negative organisms, and they live in the gut normally and healthily in healthy people, such as E. coli and Klebsiella. When they do penetrate the bloodstream and grow in the bloodstream, because there are no white cells there, that is essentially a 98% lethal thing. And we know it's 98%, and this is a, a little story for you. People discovered acute myeloid leukemia and by realising that this was a condition where you ended up with far too many white cells in your blood and it was always lethal, always. Uh, But people also knew by then what happened to soldiers who'd been gassed with mustard gas. And those soldiers had no white cells in their blood and died of overwhelming infection. They put two and two together and they said, well, maybe we should treat people with leukemia with mustard gas. So they did. They didn't actually gas them, but they used the same molecule, which is exceedingly cytotoxic. And it's identical to the chemotherapy we give now, in principle. And what they found was that they cured the leukaemia, i.e. the white cells disappeared. But by so doing, they also killed 98% of the people they treated because these people all died of overwhelming bacterial infection. So the early experiments in medicine proved that having no white cells is lethal through overwhelming gram-negative bacterial infection.
0: So I've spoke to some of the nurses upstairs before I came yeah. to speak to you. They've got quite a lot of questions. So as we've gone on to sepsis quite nicely there, our first line nationally is tazazin. So we, how does that work?
2: We do use tazacin, which is which has been around for a long time, actually. It's a remarkably uh, successful agent. So tazacin is made out of two components. One is essentially a sort of super amoxicillin. It's the same kind of antibiotic that will also work against pseudomonas. And the other component is this thing called Tasobacter. So let me tell you how piperacillin works. So what piperacillin does is it binds to the cell wall of the bacterium when it's dividing. And when it binds to it, it prevents the bug from making its outer capsule. And it's got to make a really tough outer capsule if it's going to survive, because otherwise these things just blow up, literally. They can't deal with the outside world. So on the one hand, the, all the penicillin agents, including piprocillin, work by messing up the outer capsule of the bacterium. But these bugs, of course, are smart, and they very quickly learnt to make enzymes that destroy penicillins. It's only 40 years ago that all strains of Staphylococcus aureus, and everybody knows about those because they get spots and and carbuncles and abscesses, etc., etc., 40 years ago, 100% of strains of Staph aureus in the United Kingdom were sensitive to penicillin. It's now less than five. And it's a one-way street. And in fact, Fleming, even before antibiotic resistance, said that he believed that it was every single doctor's responsibility to think before they prescribed antibiotics, because he said, I predict that one day these drugs will no longer work. And he stated it, and everybody forgets that. So on the one hand, penicillins will stop the bacterial capsule from forming correctly, so the bugs blow up. But the bugs, on the other hand, have learned to make enzymes that chew up the penicillin. And now it's not only penicillin, it's amoxicillin. It's all penicillins, basically. So MRSA is basically exactly that because it's also flucloxacillin-resistant. But to come back to the enzymes, so the reason tazocin works is that the piperacillin can only do its job if it's not getting chewed up. And the tazobactam inhibits the enzyme that chews up the piperacillin and all those agents work literally within 10 minutes by causing rapidly dividing organisms to blow up because they can't make a tough enough cell membrane so that's how that class of agent works
0: so they go so they there's a reason why they're together they're doing two separate exactly jobs right. to destroy exactly them right. okay another question from the guys Cedar, um, toxin or antigen what's the difference
2: Okay, so C. C. difficile is a really interesting one. So C. difficile has been around forever. And C. difficile is a harmless colonizer in some people. And it lives there, and it has to fight for its own little space and causes no trouble at all. So again, the problem with C. difficile is that when you take out all the other guys, it says, well, you know, I'm going to grow. And it grows. Now, some strains of C. difficile have, uh, have a gene in it that codes well, several genes, the code for toxins that we know are directly poisonous to the gut. So when you find C. difficile antigen, and maybe one in, depends on that how old you are, let's say about one in 10 of us carry C. difficile, okay? We might be antigen positive, and that's not a problem, okay? The problem comes when that population is massively expanded, courtesy of antibiotics. And the problem also comes when that population has a toxin, one or several toxin genes, and then that directly poisons the gut wall. There are some papers to suggest that people with hematological malignancy or neutropenia get into bigger trouble with C. difficile clinically, and their relapse rates are bigger. I'm not sure I believe that from my personal experience. The issue with C. difficile that's not toxin positive is that If I had C. difficile and this was my room, when I left, if I came and swabbed the room, I would find the whole room covered in C. difficile spores. So the problem is you got it, you poo it out, you don't see it, and the spores are essentially so tough that they'll live on surfaces for months. And they do. And the problem then is that even though the patient... If the patient's got diarrhea, there'll be 100 times more Mm. spores in the room, right? And, of course, you can't just... uh, Wipe it with a bit of... it. That doesn't work, which is why we get a bit heavy with HPV, which probably, well, to date, is probably the best way of killing it off. But even HPV does not get rid of all the C. difficile spores in one room.
0: Do we screen for C. difficile on admission?
2: Uh, no, Would no, we know no. if
0: the people are carrying antigens?
2: Well, no, but if we did, well, that's that's an interesting part. Yeah, you could probably do that. You might screen and you might try and control it by segregation. Uh, Just thinking of the it, cleans
0: when they leave hospital. Mm. If, if, as you say, if they're antigen positive, we won't know unless they develop diarrhoea and we've tested yeah, it. Yeah, that's exactly so right. So actually...
2: Yeah, but if they haven't got diarrhoea, they're yeah, not going to be sprayed all over the environment. Right. The problem is the, the type 7 stool incontinence because their guts hurt containing C. difficile patient. That's where the environment will get absolutely covered.
0: Do we treat this bacteria? Uh,
2: where well, And when
0: do we treat well,
2: it? Well, of course it's difficult because no. with the amount of chemotherapy and antibiotic you give, most people are going to get diarrhea. And if they're carrying C. difficile, even if it's toxin negative, sometimes we think, well, we only know some of the toxins in C. diff. Perhaps we should be treating even though they're toxin negative my personal experience in this is that you're on a hiding to nothing and in the absence of toxin positivity it's just along for the ride but maybe it's on another podcast i'll talk a bit more about the microbiome and probiotics because that is without a doubt going to offer the best chance of better outcomes for your patients
0: and metronidazole. when does that come in
2: well, you use metronidazole is effective. It's not that. It is. It's pretty effective, actually. And it's a standard of care. Either have either of you taken metronidazole?
0: Mm, it's horrible.
2: So it's horrible. You feel sick.
0: Metallic taste. Metallic sick. taste. Horrible, yeah.
2: It's horrible. stuff.
0: And you can't drink any alcohol on that antibiotic. Uh, you shouldn't it, anyway. It's interesting. That's, I, I,
2: tri- I tried. That's,
0: yes? Why yeah, I, experiment.
2: I, I drank yeah. a half pint of beer and I was fine. I had another half pint of beer. And I remember the headache oh, and the nausea to this day. Wow. Yes. It's the only, probably just about the only antibody you can't drink. So that's a myth, you know, that's been perpetuated. You can drink, yeah, you can drink on any antibody. We'll cut this and we'll put but, that but, first in the podcast, but, but, I think. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. But, only, but only claret of certain vintages.
0: Right. <laughs> you can list them after.
2: Or champagne. <laughs> or some
0: champagne. <laughs>
2: Can I ask the uh,
1: a nurse went one of the nurses on the ward went to a presentation recently and was told there was a clinical trial I think on ITU at the moment where they are doing testing of blood cultures on a like a near patient machine is that right so the ability to look for common pathogens and get almost an instantaneous result if there's Well there are various trials there's there's,
2: there's one trial there's a uh call inhale which is a 3 million pound trial going on on ITU right now, and the, the principal investigator of that one is some bloke called Gant. Mm, um, okay. uh and that is a near-patient testing, no. uh, near <laughs> testing device for actually a hospital and ventilator-acquired pneumonia, okay. uh, which is a bit different, but that will give you a bug and a resistance in 45 minutes. Wow, And that is really going to change things, we think, but that's why we're doing the trial. There are several ITU trials looking at rapid detection of bugs in blood. Mm -hmm. It's a very immature field. And at the moment, the offerings on the market, well, not even on the market, the research offerings are not fantastic and extremely expensive. But I think the day will undoubtedly come when You may have a POCT device for somebody whose teeth are chattering, what have you, possibly POCT, that'll turn that result around in an hour or so. And we're we're not there yet. We're not there yet. But, you know, does it matter if you find the bug or not that quickly? Because speed is not of the essence. The speed is of the essence in preventing the development of neutropenic sepsis with diagnosis to needle times of less than one hour, full stop. I don't mind what you give. And people say, oh, well, you shouldn't be giving broad spectrum, but even the government is saying, if you don't know what it is, treat first and think later. And that that was, they did something called start smart, then focus, and they shot themselves in the foot because he gave everybody the green light to give everybody meropenem. But I don't mind meropenem, or whatever you give. Very broad spectrum. The key there is to engage the brain and default to stopping it 24 hours unless you've got a really good reason to carry on. So as long as you've got a diagnosis in 24 hours and 90% of relevant blood cultures will be positive by then, you know, a day of marrow. But stop, I think, is better than what happens now, which is a whole bunch of sloppiness and, well, you know, oh we forgot to cross the TAS yeah. off sort of thing. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm.
0: Why do some bacteria grow in oxygen and, and, and not in others? Uh,
2: so human pathogens are broadly split or split, it's not quite like that, into these things called aerobes. And that means they can grow in oxygen in in an atmosphere with oxygen and anaerobes that are killed in the presence of oxygen. And it's a biochemical thing and it's an evolutionary thing whereby the anaerobes use different metabolic pathways and derive their energy and make their energetic molecules from things other than a reaction that requires oxygen. And those energetic molecules just don't work and cannot work in the presence of oxygen. Uh, Interesting enough, anaerobes, you can grow anaerobes in oxygen. And the way in which you do it, and you can culture them, is just to put some vitamin C in the little growing jars, because vitamin C is an oxygen scavenger. And it's the reactive oxygen intermediates that kill the bugs because they can't cope with it. They don't know what to do with them and therefore they, they rust, actually, interesting enough. Uh, so you can grow them in vitamin C on the open bench if you want to. The microbial world is split into anaerobes and not. And we know anaerobes or some anaerobes because their products of metabolism smell bad. And all the pooy smells are basically short chain fatty acids. But uh, you mark my word, the anaerobes are the good guys. They might not smell right, but they keep us alive. And there's a lot of evidence now, in both animals and in humans, that the way in which you prevent graft-versus-host disease is to not use broad-spectrum antibiotics during the neutropenic phase before the bone marrow engraftment. There's a huge increase in GVHD in patients who get the same chemo, but get more broad-spectrum antibiotic. So isn't that interesting? Yeah. So anaerobes protect it against GVHD,
0: right?
2: Which comes back to my point about how bacteria in the gut influence your immune system. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Great. very
0: interesting. Well, we could have you for another two hours, but we've let you go. But we have to do bring you back because there's right. so, so Thank many you so more much questions.